Come on. They're right there. Let's go. Move, 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 move. Absolutely, guys. Uh, first off, thank you guys for giving me this opportunity. I am humbled to be here today. Um, very excited. Looking forward to uh, this conversation. Uh, just getting to know one another and just sharing some of my experiences um, from the military now law enforcement. And like I said, truly, truly uh, thankful to be here. Yeah, man. Appreciate it. Awesome. So, I mean, uh, the way I like to start each episode, if you've ever seen any shows, kind of some pointed questions there in the beginning. And I want to know where you come from. I want to know where a, a, a big deep dive into what I'm looking at, looking into for myself, um, my own personal research is where does American exceptionalism come from? Absolutely. Um, and it comes from somewhere. Uh, so what was the, what was the uh, childhood dynamic as far as uh, was both parents in the house? Did you have siblings? Was religion involved? Those are the, the three big wave tops I like to cover in the beginning. So... Um I was born in Colombia, actually, uh, South America, for mm -hmm. those who don't know where Colombia is. Um, very uh, beautiful country. We're known for, for coffee. Uh, I was born there, and mainly I was raised by my grandmother. Um, when I was two years old, my mother migrated to the United States and pursued the American dream and to provide for me and my brother, my older brother at the time, and the rest of my family. Mm -hmm. uh, my father was not in the picture. Um, when he was, he just kind of came in. Saw me for a day. Um, I was lucky that he showed up on birthdays occasionally, but other than that, it was strictly my grandmother, um, my older brother, my co two cousins, and my aunt. Mm -hmm. Those were those were my family. Mm -hmm. um, my grandmother was very strict um, from the beginning. She still very hard values on me, um, and she wanted the best for me. Mm -hmm. So that to me meant a lot. Um, I would speak to my mom over the phone. Um, about every day that she would call down there and and you know I I remember when I was two um, I have a, a very vague image of her but I didn't see my mom again until I was nine mm -hmm. so when I was nine the opportunity came for me and my brother to move to the United States and uh, I remember being on that airplane with my grandma and I was nine years old and she was my mother and my father figure. Mm -hmm. And I remember being on an airplane, she put me down on an airplane and, and I just cried. <laughs> I mean, crying, crying, because I didn't know what to expect. You know, mm -hmm. I'm, I'm leaving everything behind me, mm -hmm. coming to a new and different country, different culture, having to learn a different language. I don't know anybody. Mm -hmm. And I was very nervous. But um, I gave her a hug and, you know, she said everything was going to be great. Um, Got to the United States on July 4th, 2004. Yeah, uh, I landed in JFK, uh, New York airport. And uh, I remember going through customs and everything. And and they put me in this little room. You landed in JFK where you were headed to? Oh, uh, New Jersey. That's okay. where my mom okay. lived. Okay. So gotcha. landed in one of the biggest airports. There. <laughs> yeah, same, same, man. That's a heck yeah. of a one to start in. Uh, lang language barrier. Um, yeah. I think um, I was with the... Uh, one of the ladies from the air, uh, airline was, you know, guiding me around. Mm -hmm. But um, custom, they, because um, it was my first time coming to the United States, they brought me to this little room where, you know, they had to verify my visa and everything, right? Oh, yeah. Now, so, are you with your brother at least? No, my older brother actually ended up coming by, uh, 30 days behind me. Okay, okay. So I was by myself. Oh, my goodness. Yeah.
came, my high school was offering uh, a program called um, through an um, ROTC, which was the Marine Corps ROTC, and um, had the first sergeant, retired first sergeant, who was the instructor. And as a freshman, I remember going in there, and I'm like, man, I want to be in here. I remember everybody, you know, doing formations and marching mm -hmm. and, and doing the drills. So I signed up for that instead of um, gym, the typical gym. Mm -hmm. And I started going through the whole program from all the way to senior year. Um, I played sports. I played soccer. Um, it was pretty much all I wanted to do, play soccer and being on the ROTC program. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And, and that, to me, was huge because um, that instructor, that first sergeant, was kind of like a father figure to me. Do you remember who it was? Yeah, first sergeant Philbert. Uh, Michael Philbert, to this day, we're friends on Facebook. Shout out, Michael. Yeah, um, and, and he was typical first sergeant, you know, <laughs> by the book, but hey, uh, I'm thankful. A lot of my friends actually uh, were what in the program with me as well. What is, it about, what is it about him that made him that impactful to you? Um, he was straightforward. He didn't sugarcoat anything. If you were wrong, you were wrong. He corrected you, but he... He, he told you why he was correcting you, mm -hmm, you know, mm -hmm. and, and he he legit wanted you to be successful, whether it was going off to college or going off to the military. Like he had genuine care about yes. your future. Absolutely. Um, and he spent more, more time with us than he did with his family. Mm -hmm. And um, most of us that were in the program had some interest in the military. Um, however, my mother told me, at a young age, she said, I'm a single mom. I can't, I can't afford to pay for you to go to school. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So you're going to have to either get a scholarship or join the military. Mm -hmm. But growing up in Colombia, um, I remember seeing the police officers on there and the National Army. And I always thought I wanted to be either a cop or in the military. There's something about you, your archetype said that yes. you were going to protect people and not the opposite of that. At you know, so mm -hmm. I wanted to join the Navy. Mm -hmm. So when I turned 17, I went up to my mom and said, hey, I want to, I want to join the, the military mom. And she was so proud. She was like, absolutely. Yeah. Um, of course. So, you know, obviously I was not 18, so she had a sign for me. So I went down to the recruiter station, and it was both the Army, the Marine Corps, and Navy all together in one building. Mm -hmm. So when you walk in, um, I remember going in and, and I see the Navy recruiter, I think it was like a chief, and, and, and he was just by himself in the desk. And I go in there and I'm like, uh, I'm looking for my recruiter such and such. And he's like, well, he ain't here. And it was like a Friday, Friday afternoon. And I was like, okay, well, I'm, I guess I'm gonna go home, right? But next door to it, it was the Marine Corps recruiter and it was like chaos coming from that office. Like, <laughs> yeah. So, you know, obviously curiosity kills a cat. Yeah. So I poke my head in there in the, in the Marine Corps recruiter's office, and uh, they're all doing pull-ups and just, you know, hollering. and, and Just the sounds of getting after yeah. it. Yeah. <laughs> yep, and, yep. <laughs> and they see me. They see me put my head in there, and the recruiter's like, hey, <laughs> you, get over here, right? So I'm like, yes, sir, you know. Um, what are you doing here? I said, I'm here to join the Navy, sir. He's <laughs> like, the what? <laughs> the Navy. He's like, no, you're not. You're going to be a Marine. Hop on the pull-up bar and give me 10, right? But at the time, I was pretty in shape because I was getting ready. Yeah. Uh, we run three miles a day, uh, pull-ups. My mom bought me a pull-up bar that you put in, in, in over your um, the frame of your room. Yeah. And that's what I use. Bust them out. Yeah. So I knocked out 10, and they're like, oh, you know, this guy, you know. So I liked it. They like they invited me to be part of the, the you know, coming to their uh, weekly 
PT sessions, which is like a Wednesday, every Wednesday we met at 4.30. And I was always there on time. We ran three, four, five miles. I mean, we were in shape. Mm-hmm. So then um, I had to take my ASVAB, right? I enjoy my job, but very quickly I realized that's not what I wanted to do. In the wrong spot, huh? Yeah. What What made you feel like that? Well, most of the guys in that unit were, um, <clears throat> they were going to get out. They wanted, you know, to do four years and get out. And I was very motivated. You know, mm-hmm. I was PT stud. Um, anything, anything that came available, like, I was doing it. You know, I wanted to be... I wanted to be a leader. I was taking charge of guys, you know, and very quickly I started realizing that I did, that's not what I wanted to do, but it was a job mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and, you know, I did it anyway. Um, but at the same time, I started kind of like um, setting myself apart from the rest of my peers. Mm-hmm. So I got promoted to corporal very young. I, I think it's like under two years. Um, I went through, uh, I became a Mac map instructor. Got uh, all the way to Black Bell, then started teaching Marines, um, and then I got promoted to. Uh, when you say you started teaching Marines, you brought that back to your unit and started training martial arts with your like with your section of guys. Yeah, so yeah. they sent me to be a, a, a an instructor. So I came back and I started PTing my guys and and you know just kind of motivating my guys. And then they sent me to be a coach, a marksmanship coach. And I went out to the range, spent a lot of time in the range. Most of the time I was TAD doing all that stuff. And then I came back and right about the three and a half year time frame of being in, um, the opportunity came to where I got orders to go be an enabler at a uh, second Marine Raider Battalion. In shape, you know, awesome, humble individuals. Like I think it was a corporal at the time and I just started picking people's brains. Yeah. Um, walk into a room where it's a bunch of lions that already proved themselves. Yes. So, so there's no room for personality. And then it becomes, these are the guys that operate on different levels than, mm-hmm. than the rest of the fleet. Yep. And then that becomes contagious regardless of who you are. Like exactly. we've, we've had that a lot of times on here. Guys and, talking about it. And I had a friend of mine who, he was a gunny at the time. He was an actual raider. Mm-hmm. Um, and he, he would just, tell me how everything that he would do and everything that he all the training and all the experiences and he kept telling me man you try it out man do go for it you could do it um my biggest fear was swimming mm. i couldn't swim man so i checked into the unit uh as an enabler the marines um, are amphibious aren't we yeah yeah some of us <laughs> yeah that basic there's a lot of us that can't swim i figured out <laughs> that basic swim quad it's not it man it's not <laughs> it from my actual uh, cadre instructor everything was from a whiteboard and uh came from child from lunch and uh there's a huge whiteboard and there was a list with like 31 numbers in there and we all gather around this you know whiteboard we looked at the whiteboard and um they said, if your number's in here, gather all your belongings, be outside in the yellow lines within 10 minutes. And uh, my name was, my number was right there, along with the same guys that I thought were badass dudes. So we were all scrambling our stuff as fast as we could. We get to the yellow lines, and we were all, like, nervous, looking at each other. We were like, man, did we, did we make it? Because we knew that you could only attend this election one time. 
um, if you make it all the way to the, to the second phase. You could try it out as many times in the first phase, but if, once you make it to the second phase, you can't come back mm-hmm. because you already know what's, what's going to take part, right? Mm-hmm. So I think it was a colonel came out, and um, he came out, and he's like, a Marine uh, Raider colonel, he's like, man, congrats. You guys are being, you guys are hard select to be Marine Corps or special operators. And we were like, wow. Like, you know, it was just like, holy shit. Are you serious? And we were all, you know, like hugging each other, happy. You know, a lot of the guys are crying. Man, that right there, what is, it was probably the biggest blow, like nut check, or like it was the most disappointing mm-hmm. life moment of my entire life, man. I went home. I was married at the time. And I cried, man. I cried for days, man. Mm-hmm. I didn't want to do anything. I did, I, you know, my dream was crushed. Mm-hmm. Like, yes, it was a simple, you know, petty mistake. I took ownership for it, but like, you just pull that away from me. Like, mm-hmm. and I, I begged and begged to be able to go to school, man. And they were like, nope, you're not going. Like, you're done. I'm like, dude, I just went through all this. I re enlisted for five years. And now you're saying I can't, you know, go to school? Like, you invested all this money in me. So that was the first, the first slap in my face that I got from the Marine Corps. And but the sergeant major wasn't a Marine Raider sorry, uh, sergeant major. Mm-hmm. He was like an admin sergeant major, man. Mm-hmm. So, 2018, and um, obviously I was like, man, this is not what I wanted, but this is how it's going to be. So I had to accept it, right? Yeah, and I would say at least they took care of you. Like, yeah. there's a lot of people that got injured in the Marine Corps that didn't get boarded ever mm-hmm. because of one reason or another, but a lot of times bad command structures. Yeah. Uh, other times um, they didn't speak up for themselves mm-hmm. uh, until things got bad, you know, and then they get out or maybe they're ignorant, you know. Uh, they don't know the ways of Marine Corps or, God forbid, it happens when they're E3 or below and nobody really gives, you know, now they're better about it, but yeah. when we were all coming up, they didn't really care about that, you know. Drink water, yeah. Eat ibuprofen, change your socks, and that's kind of like the and advice. then go to war. Yeah, so at least you, mm-hmm. you know, got you know a, a fig a fig leaf extended to you, you know. Yeah, so I got bolted um, for three years. Got out uh, medically retired temporarily for three years, right? So that was in the end of uh, December 2018. So now I'm like, what do I do? Mm-hmm. I started thinking, what do I do? I mean, I have a trade that I learned from the Marine Corps where I could make pretty good money in the civilian side. Mm-hmm. But again, I don't have a purpose. Mm-hmm. I'm gig where, you know, it's an additional collateral, uh, you know, responsibility. It's not mm-hmm. a full-time. Mm-hmm. There's very few agencies in North Carolina that have a full-time SWAT team. Check. Like Raleigh being one of them. Um, and there's all the other couple agencies that have full-time SWAT teams. So most of us are just part-time gigs. Sure. So we train about once a month. Um, and that's because our budget, our training budget, it was, it was not, it's not the best. Yep. You know, it's very yep. limited. So, but we do, we make, we make it work from what we have. Mm-hmm. We, we get the job done, right? So woke up that Sunday morning, uh, Sunday afternoon, got ready to, you know, go to the gym. And um, we communicate through our group chat. And um, our team commander um, sends out a, a text message. Say, hey, all SWAT team members, be on standby. 
we have a barricade of sus- uh, subject incident. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, you know, got all my gear ready, which keep all your gear, you know, your... your like a go kit. Yeah, your go kit, your, your flak, your, mm-hmm. um, your plate carrier, your helmet, gas mask, your comms, rifle, your duty belt, everything, right? Uniform. So I, I kept always keep everything ready in my vehicle, mm-hmm, you know, mm-hmm. park my vehicle in the garage. So they were like, all right, man, we're, we're, we need you guys up here. Okay. So I got ready very quick and I uh, was single at the time, just me and my dog. And I uh, walked over to my neighbor's house, uh, who's also a, 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 a cop deputy, um, good friend of mine, Eric Smith. And I walked over next door and said, hey, man, um, I got to go. Can you please watch my dog? You know, my dog is my everything, you know. Mm-hmm. He's like, sure, man. I, come on, bring him over. So I leave. And then as I'm on the way there, um, the radio, man, is, is crazy on the radio traffic, mm-hmm. hitting what's going on. So the incident was um, there was a gentleman that owned the house. And uh, he had invited... Um, somebody over for a specific time period of time and then somehow along the way that 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 turned out to be a, a situation where the owner of the house didn't want the individual in the house anymore mm-hmm. but um that individual the suspect um he was under the influence of drugs and um pretty much threatened the homeowner or, or the individual who lived at the home to um hey if 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 you don't let me stay here, I'm gonna kill you. You know, mm-hmm. and um, I, he apparently he was armed. He, you know, he told him that he was armed and and that he had um, homemade IDs at the house. And so the reaction, the human reaction was, "Hey, I'm gonna call the cops, right?" Yeah, hundred percent. Um, so he called the cops, and uh, the rest of the team behind me. I got like six guys behind me. I got the shield. Um, I passed my. AR-15 back to one another member, and um, and I'm going with the pistol. Yeah, I'm going with my Glock. Pistol and shield. Yeah, Glock. And the decision was made that we're going to deploy gas into the house. Mm -hmm. So we started pumping gas, CS gas, into this house. And this house was not a big house, about 800 square foot. Mm -hmm. You know, it wasn't a big house, but we pumped about seven to eight canisters of CS gas, which is a lot, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. a lot of gas, and just trying to flush him, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Trying to flush him, trying to get him out peacefully. But this guy was under the influence. Uh, so it didn't take any effect on him. You know, he just wow. he actually made it worse because he got angrier and angrier. And I could hear him through the walls just getting angry. We made eye contact and it was just like a split of a second. And I'm out here holding that gun out, shield, you know. And he um, he reaches out for my my hand my, my handgun. Big dude. I mean, he was like six three, probably twice my size. Man, he reaches out, and at that time I had a split of a second to make the decision because I knew, um, like I said, I was we're carrying uh, G forty fives, seventeen seventeen in the magazine, one in the chamber, if I'm correct, or maybe sixteen in the magazine, one in the chamber. But I knew that if he would have grabbed my handgun, he probably would have killed me, my team commander, and anybody else behind me. Mm-hmm. So I perceived it as a huge threat, man. When he tried to, somebody tries to reach for a gun, you know. 
So when he tried to grab my barrel, um, I shot him three times. Uh, shot him in the chest. He fell. Um, I dropped my shield, and um, he got up. He got up, you know, and I double tapped him again, and he fell again. And then at that point, I didn't even have time to even holster my gun. I remember just putting it on, on top of like a little kitchen table that was like nearby, and just put it there. And I just jumped on top of him, and I started wrestling him, and you know, try to get him in handcuffs. And and very quickly, I realized that I was covered in blood, and and. <clears throat> I was able to get him in handcuffs. My friend comes in, and at that point, it, it goes from like, okay, well, now we have to. I have to give this guy. I have to render aid. Aid. Like, yeah, he he tr he, he might have a bad intention towards me, and, and the rest of us. But now it goes from using deadly force to now I have to save his life. Mm -hmm. So you flip you flip that switch very fast, right? But. Treat everybody with respect. The biggest thing mm -hmm. I have learned in my law enforcement career is treating people with respect. Mm -hmm. uh, because we're all human beings. And when I started, I was very aggressive. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. You know, oh, no, you're going to show me your hands. You are under arrest. You know, and that created a lot of situations where I could have avoided. It could have been prevented just by me speaking to people. <clears throat> and that came with time experience mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and i have found that out that now i could do so much by just talking to people i mm -hmm, can convince mm -hmm. you to put your own handcuffs on you know by showing you a little respect de-escalating situation sympathy keeping nerves down having a little bit of compassion mm -hmm. this is all the stuff that i teach and in, 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 for my course at franklin county i, I teach uh, franklin county ohio is um it's the county that Columbus is in. It's the county where my little brother is a, is a, is a CEO at and uh, went through the peace officers course. And it's kind of like up there, there's still some competition. So he's been in the jail for quite some time looking mm -hmm. to get to SWAT or to the, you know, to the beat. And, um, and so they, uh, you know, approached me, um, I think three years ago now, this will be the third year that I've been teaching critical intervention skills with them. And I've, I've taught, so for, you know, three straight peace officers courses that they, teach i'm telling them hey respect is going to go farther than authoritative tones and Absolutely. these kind of um i'm no cop but i know how i would want to be treated and i'm mm -hmm. one of those guys that has issues from the war so and a little bit of dis disenfranchisement and a little bit of lack of trust system over the last couple of years and it's like if these are things common to me that i'm thinking about these are things that these other veterans in your ao and your constituents and the people you're supposed to keep safe that's what they're thinking about a lot of them you know, and so we really get after it. We do a two-hour course during their, uh, during their peace officers course, just specifically speaking on these things and on these situations and on the danger. I mean, you take a disenfranchised SF guy or a regular infantry guy, you're talking about somebody that you don't want to come up and be authoritative with. The, the difference in how you approach some of these people uh, could be a shooting versus not a shooting. And, you know, everywhere in between, depending on the demeanor, the respect, and the de-escalation that you can bring to the table, you know? And so we talk a lot about that. I think that's needed. I think that's needed more places. Um, but I'm glad that your guys' training is uh, continuing. I know offline you were showing me some some pretty sick. Not too far. You're marking the building. Hit him. Yeah, that's good. That's a good shot. That's a funny. Yeah. Funny.